Good morning, my name is Danny Clark, and um, if you don't know me, um, should I step back? Is it, does it sound correct to you? It just sounds a lot different from up here. Uh, um, my wife, Aspa, and our son, Coleman, and I have been here uh, at Two Rivers for going on five years now, and uh, we're, um, we love the people of this church, and um, have been thankful for a home here. Uh, I'm the Reformed University Fellowship Pastor at the College of Charleston. Uh, this morning I wanted to ask, have you ever enjoyed uh, a television show so much that during the summer, you know, in the downtime of, tele- of television, you know, when nothing's really on, that you watched that show again uh, all the way through from the beginning to the end? Well, uh, that's what I've been doing uh, with a show called should I step back? That's okay. Gosh, it just sounds so weird for me. All right. Um, so I've been doing that with uh, a college student that we have who's staying with us this summer, uh, Will, the guy in the red shirt in the front, just to embarrass him. But um, we've been watching a show called Freaks and Geeks. Um, what a name. The, it makes me proud uh, to admit it in public. Freaks and Geeks. Well, it was a seminal TV show that aired on NBC around ni- between 1999 and 2000, and it made Time Magazine's uh, list of the 100 greatest television shows of all time, and Entertainment Weekly called it, um, rated it as the 13th best show of the last, you know, 25 years. And it, so it, it launched the careers of sort of numerous stars, like uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen and all these different people. Um, but not unlike uh, many great works of art, Freaks and Geeks wasn't really appreciated uh, in its own time. Uh, and it was canceled after one season. So uh, set in the early 1980s, the show depicted the lives of high school students, uh, but not from the perspective of sort of jocks and cheerleaders, which it, you know, was usually done, but rather the concept was to realistically showcase the lives of insufficient teenagers. Um, the, the freaks, the rebellious, class-skipping, you know, drug users, and the geeks, the, the nerds who were into sci-fi um, and were you know, picked last during gym and, and were all-star members of the mathletes team, um, which I was sort of jealous that they didn't have at my high school. Um, But the beauty of the show was that even though at first glance you think, oh, this is just a bunch of stereotypes, um, over the arc of the season, everyone is humanized. Uh, And you realize that people are all in many ways the same. They just desperately want to be loved. Both the rebel, you know, the the freak, and the nerdy do-gooder, the geek, are miserable because they're slaves to other people's expectations. One uh, spends his life trying to earn the approval from people, uh, you know, with, with their expectations. And the other spends his life running from the expectations out of a fear of failure. And so the, the thing that I, I took from the show was that no matter who you are, uh, a, a jock, a cheerleader, a freak, a geek, um, whether you're a parent who owns a, you know, a, a company that's very successful or... Uh, a single parent who's divorced and has no job, 
all of us um, want to please people. And we search for our identity and gaining the approval of others. And this is sort of a never-ending endeavor that weighs our lives down. So the problem that we're looking at in our passage this morning that, that really connects to this universal struggle is that in every arena of life, we are seduced by the slavery of pleasing others. That's the problem. So, um, what does Paul's letter have to, to say about, about this? Well, Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, it, the overarching themes are slavery and freedom. Those are the two big themes. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw that um, the gospel was being distorted. And it was a grave danger to our freedom. And then in, in the second half of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, uh, we saw um, the, you know, Paul was lobbying for the apostles' authority. And the apostles' authority being sort of the grounds for our freedom. And then uh, chapter 2 later on talked about justification by faith, the key to being granted freedom. And then uh, in chapter 3, we, we, we looked at God's story of redemption. How throughout history, there has always been a pattern of freedom by faith. And then in chapter 3 and 4, last week, you guys looked at the Mosaic Law and how it was a guardian for our freedom now as heirs that we are today. So in chapter 4, today's passage, we're looking at adoption. How does being adopted as sons and daughters of God tie into freedom? Well, at the end of our passage from last week, um, in verses 4 through 7, chapter 4, um, Phil gave me this really weird passage that has like the really good stuff that's encouraging right before it and the really great stuff that's really encouraging after it, and they both tie into the passage, but I'm, I'm going to just remind, I'm going to leave next week's really exciting stuff for then, but um, I'm going to take three of the verses from last week that sort of explain our verses this week. And so they should be up there. Yep, there it is. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the, the three things that this passage, you know, that those verses lay out. Can you go to the next slide? There we go. Three brief things that it says is that we're adopted as sons and daughters, and so we're fully accepted members of God's family. Uh, adoption it was a costly for God. He had to redeem those under the law. And, and so we are forgiven. We're released from the punishment of our sins. And we're safe, actually, to be able to sort of confess our sins and know continued forgiveness every day. Um, you know, sort of in a way, like, um, from a parent, we could only dream of being uh, unconditionally loved by. And then the second is that we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our hearts that cries, Abba, Father. So we have a, a pledge here of our inheritance in the Spirit, like a, a foretaste of it. And we're invited to pray and call God our Father. 
which is, a lot of us struggle with our fathers, but to be able to call him our father, the, the real father, um, is a beautiful thing. And then the third thing is that we are heirs through God. Our future is secured, and so we don't have to be slaves to fear. Those are sort of the three things that I want to preface this passage with. All right, so what does adoption have to do with slavery and freedom? Well, verse 7 says, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. Paul expects that you know, adoption from God should be profoundly, you know, it should profoundly affect uh, your life and my life, giving us sort of a supreme sense of freedom in every arena. Do you feel freedom? Do you? If not, we need to ask ourselves why. In our passage, Paul is going to carefully warn us of two sort of what I'm going to call perilous obstructions to experiencing adoption's freedom. And then thirdly, he's going to give us a window into the beauty of experiencing the freedom of adoption, uh, a beauty that's, frankly, it's alarming. It, it has a, it's, it's jolted me this week as I've seen the freedom. It's messed with my head in a really good way. All right, so the first two perilous obstructions. The first one, I call it an old slavery. Uh, being uh, seduced by our past patterns of ignorance. Um, so, who is Paul talking about when he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved, in verse 8, in verse eight formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not God's. Who are they enslaved to? Well, well and who or what is Paul talking about in verse 9 when he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be, uh, you know, um, once more? What are the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And where do they come from, frankly? And why do the Galatians want to become enslaved to them once more? I don't, this is like weird language. What is, what's going on here? Well, the things that they used to be enslaved to in verse 8, that were not by nature gods, those things, right, they're false gods created or imagined by men. Uh, the weak and the worth, worthless elementary principles of the world in verse 9, whose enslavement they wanted to return were, well, th- those were the ignorant, sort of unenlightened base principles and values created by men that sort of direct a culture's actions. Just without any enlightenment from God, sort of what culture has determined is best. Um, But in both cases, whether false gods or elementary principles of society, they're devised and they're arbitrated by human beings. So for the person who's believed in the gospel to return to those patterns... Uh, of ignorance is to really return to, if they're, if they're devised and arbitrated by men, then it's really just returning to people-pleasing. Ultimately, we're enslaved to and controlled by old idols and society's sort of base principles because we're seeking the approval of men. So, these could be idols of success, of beauty, of youth, of comfort, you name it, what is your, you know, what, 
when you throw out, like, oh, here's my idol that I struggle with, the thing that I look to that's most important, it, whatever that thing is, behind it is your desire to be approved by men. So, the second thing uh, that we see in verse 9, um, Paul does something weird at the beginning of verse 9. In the middle of his argument about the absurdity of returning to this old slavery, he makes a statement and then immediately corrects himself. Why would you make a statement and then immediately correct yourself? You're like writing. Why didn't he just like, you know, like cross it out? Well, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, this is a confusing correction. And I, I thought God already knew everyone and everything, right? You know, they couldn't all of a sudden become known by God. Wouldn't it make more sense for them to come to know God like he initially stated? Well, Paul is speaking of experiential knowledge here, of intimate, personal relationship. So, relational knowledge. Remember that they've become adopted as sons and daughters. And so when Paul says uh, that they've become known by God, he's reminding them that the, the relationship was initiated by God, guaranteed by God, and completed by God in the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit you know, in their hearts, not by their own efforts uh, to come to know God. So earning salvation is a second form of slavery intimately connected to pleasing God and pleasing people that the son or daughter of, of God foolishly returns to. Um, anytime we fall back into certain patterns or practices in order to feel secure, to guarantee some sort of righteousness, that is slavery. Trying to earn our salvation. So, have you ever known someone who apologized way too much and it drove you crazy? They were constantly apologizing for things. They were over the top with sorries and thank you so much that it made you feel tense because you began to symbiotically sort of feel the pressure that they felt to be in your good graces. It's been especially prevalent for me in my experience with kids coming from alcoholic homes. It's the you know, instability that occurs with children of alcoholics who you know, having to walk on eggshells all the time, determine if I complete these following actions, things should be okay, right? I'll be okay. I, I can't be condemned if, if I keep things in a certain way. Nothing's worse than a child constantly saying, sorry, sorry, and, and trying to make up for something. Fearful that they've done something wrong or said something to displease their parent. Um, and earn their wrath. What, what does the parent like, think about that? They're like, whoa, do you not believe that you're loved by me? That, that it's conditional? What's, what's going on? But, you know, I think that it's not always just even in such an obvious way that we sort of return to these false idols of, of people-pleasing. It's somewhat more veiled, but often existed with just everyday people in their service I want to say, in one of the, the best aspects of our church, is that people, our entire time here, have consistently been, like, working for the Lord, serving the church, 
in ways that nobody sees, trudging forward even when they're not praised or given thanks or encouraged. But I I think that one of the struggles that our church has, whether in, in our service to the church or in our friendships, is it's this subconscious question, am I in the black or am I in the red in my service? Do I need to make up for not doing as well as I should have been? Or what's, what's going on here? But remember verses 4 and 5 from last week. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born under the law, and He lived in the black so that we might be adopted. And He freed us from the black or the red. There's no meter. It doesn't exist. We're loved by God. You know, a parent pays a great price for caring for their kids, but they actually delight in that sacrifice. I was so happy to drive Coleman seven hours to North Alabama to go to this, like, Christian camp and... um, uh, you know, I was happy on my limited pastor's salary to, um, to like pay monthly payments to afford that, that camp throughout the year just to send him there. And I, I love him. I want the best for him. I'm not like some saint about it. You know, that's what parents do. Parents pay a great price, but they do it out of love, right? A kid in a loving home doesn't worry if they're in the black or the red with their parents. They just know that they're loved. That's our Father in Heaven. Now Paul doesn't just speak of the old slavery of people pleasing, you know, of people pleasing through old idols or trying to earn salvation. He also introduces his primary concern of the passage. And that's what's going on in Galatia right here. Most profoundly is a new kind of slavery. Uh, The new slavery, it's found in verses 17 through 20. And I'm going to call it seduced by the sirens of flattery. So there were these guys, the Judaizers, who had come to, um, to Galatia, which is in Turkey, and the Judaizers were from Jerusalem, as it's been mentioned before, and they, you know, what were the Judaizers doing, you know, when they came uh, to Galatia and had this, like, unhealthily powerful pull on the Galatians? What was their tactic? Well, Verse 17, right at the beginning, it says, they make much of you, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. So look who's come all the way from Jerusalem to little old Galatia and given them tons of attention. You know, important people are making me feel important. What's the biggest reason I've seen people that, you know, turn away from the faith? Someone made them feel so special that when they were forced to choose, they turned away from God and the church because there was a specialness that, I, that they felt. Feeling special is an incredibly powerful thing. What's the biggest reason I see people sucked into churches with a distorted gospel? Someone there made them feel special. The power of flattery. We can talk all we want about how you know millennials feel this over-the-top need to be unique, gifted, to be special. 
and how everybody gets a trophy these days and how awful that is. <laughs> and I agree with that. But I will say, every person I know longs to be special. At the dog park I go to, if you start asking people questions about themselves, about their experiences, their interests, whether they're 70 or they're like 10 years old, their face lights up. Everyone wants someone else to find them interesting, to give them value, to make them special. But here Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. What does that mean? For no good purpose. Well, the second half of 17 says, further explains, they want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. So these Judaizers were were really there giving the Galatians attention. It's sort of like um, fraternities rushing. You know, I'm using that example because I I see it all the time, right? Um, The Judaizers were there giving the Galatians attention so that they might make the Galatians realize that, uh, you know, frankly, they were incomplete or not not good enough without getting circumcised and adhering to the Mosaic Law, becoming not just Christians, but Jewish Christians. If the Judaizers could make the Galatians become Jewish, like them, it would make the Judaizers feel important, authoritative, special themselves. So the tendency of legalism, what we're talking about here is, you know, is to add to the gospel in areas you naturally excel. Areas that set you apart as being special and identifying yourself with those areas and evangelizing your form of legalism. You feel legitimized and righteous to have others affirm your patterns and want to follow them as well and become like you. So how do you know if someone is pure in their motives about caring for your soul? I don't want you guys to like go home and be wary of every person that, you know, wants to be your friend. You know, rather than just wanting you to be like them for their own sake. Well, you know, and how can you know if you aren't evangelizing others in a Jesus plus whatever your worldly righteousness is? Um, As Will has been living with us this summer, uh, we quickly found out that Will had never been to Trader Joe's, uh, the grocery store. And um, Aspa um, is the greatest evangelizer of Trader Joe's that I know. And, um, and so we have been introducing Will to everything Trader Joe's, bringing things home like the little tiny uh, uh, miniature peanut butter cups and the and the frozen pizzas, and all the frozen meals that are amazing, and, and he's just eating them. He still hasn't been to Trader Joe's. That's going to be the day, you know, like when the world changes for Will. But, you know, we've been evangelizing him with Trader Joe's the whole time. However, if we saw Will, and like if Will ate um, the cookie butter from Trader Joe's and was like, eh, not that great, and we were like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, if, if, if we thought less of Will 
because of something that we find beautiful and, and he doesn't love or embrace, that's not the gospel. We're adding, we're adding Trader Joe's to the gospel. Does that make sense? So, in verses 18 through 20, Paul is like, hey, he's like the exact opposite. I've got no problem with you being made much of. You know, if it's for a good purpose, meaning for honorable reasons, pure motives, you know, in contrast to sort of the Judaizers' selfish, manipulative motives. Uh, But then he follows that with, and not only when I'm present with you. What does he mean, like, not only when I'm present with you? Well, Paul's not... Paul's not being controlling of their affections or attention toward himself. He doesn't need to be there. But his deep concern, as spelled out in verses 19 and 20, is is that they've abandoned the true gospel. Not necessarily him. And anyone who's ever labored over sharing the gospel with someone that they knew and that they loved, you know then the pain of yearning for that person to truly embrace God's love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saddened to be suffering these pains with this church that he planted for what he seems, seems to him like as a second time. They seem to abandon the true gospel in his absence. So he only wishes that he could be with them instead of in a jail cell where he's writing from, giving them the right kind of attention and teaching instead of, you know, the manipulative, distorted gospel that they're being taught by the Judaizers. So we learn from Paul one way to tell if someone is seducing you into slavery is are they possessive or jealous of you or, you know, for you? Are they concerned that you'll abandon them or their way? Or is their deep concern really you're growing to trust Christ alone? Christ alone more for your salvation and and really embracing your adoption more as a son or a daughter of God. Remember when I mentioned earlier the blessings of being adopted uh, from verse 6 last week and said, And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Well, Abba, Father, it's a name uh, for a far more sort of special relationship. It's an Aramaic word, and here's what's important. In the New Testament, the writers wrote in Greek, but the word Abba was left in Aramaic. Why? The answer is that it was the way that Jesus spoke to his father. In spite of the fact that virtually no one in Jewish culture referred to God with this endearing word, Abba, it stunned the disciples. They held on to it as a precious remnant of the voice of Jesus in the language that he spoke. When we're adopted by God, he doesn't leave us still as as distant aliens. He doesn't leave us without any assurances or feelings of acceptance of love. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son 
enter our hearts crying, Abba, Father. There was a, a young woman that eight years ago was a freshman at CFC, and um, her, at the beginning of her freshman year, her parents started going through a, a painful divorce. Um, and it, I met with her every Friday morning at what used to be a great breakfast place. Now is like, whatever, Jack's uh, Diner downtown. And we would sit at Jack's every morning, and she would just, every Friday, and she would just sort of weep and talk through the, the latest things that were going on with her family. And that was uh, just an incredible opportunity and time for me to be able to minister the gospel to someone. And then through her, her years she, at CFC, she went through rebellion uh, toward God and, 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 and doubts you know, all throughout college. But by the time that she, had gra- she graduated, um, coming out of all kinds of stormy relationships, she was walking with the Lord. And I remember uh, two and a half years later meeting with her in Atlanta when I was uh, at um, RUF training, and, and we got lunch, and I was like, so how are you doing? And she said, well, Danny, I wanted to tell you I met a guy. And she just went on and started talking about this guy, and I was like, yes! Like, this, is, this sounds like a dream husband. He's even better than I could have expected. So they ended up getting married, and she has a, a beautiful baby girl, and, and she is a, a spiritual guide to so many people around her. And she lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And so when we took Coleman to camp several weeks ago, we stopped in Birmingham and, and stayed with them for a night, and, um, and we went driving to hear a symphony in the park in Birmingham. And when we were in the, the minivan that we had rented for the trip, and like, we were all talking and joking around. You know, my, my name is Danny, but she, she said, Dad. She called me Dad. And that was, like, Im- immediately I played it off, like, oh, I'm so old. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. I loved it. To be able to, you know, like, that's a special name. And, I, you know, don't ever think that you're not special. Because the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. He has a special name for you. Let it ring more loudly in your heart than the manipulative seduction of flattery. Now, the last little part of this um, passage um, is really this really amazing, and this is sort of where the, the jolting and, and powerful part was for me this week, but in verses 12 through 16, we sort of learn what the freedom of adoption is. The freedom of adoption is to be able to freely give out of a child's blessedness. Let me explain. Verse 12, Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And now you may be thinking, well, Danny, that sounds like people-pleasing slave labor, right? Become like me. Didn't, we, didn't you just preach against that? Well, that's no different you know, than, the, than the Judaizers or whatever, right? Well, wait a second. Paul's already made this argument back in chapter 2. You know, he was a Jew, the most Jewish of Jews. But when he became a Christian, 
he stopped adhering to Jewish Mosaic law because Jesus had fulfilled what the law had pointed to. And salvation was by faith in Jesus, not by adherence to the Mosaic law. And so the Galatians, being Gentiles, they'd never kept the Mosaic law as a practice for being right with God. But when they heard the Gospel from Paul, they only believed in Jesus to be justified. So by believing in Jesus alone, in order to be made right with God, Paul became like them. A Gentile, as chapter 2 said, a Gentile sinner. What's his point? Paul not only preached the gospel's freedom, but he also lived out of the gospel's freedom, trusting only in Jesus for justification. And here's the, the key part. Even when it wasn't advantageous to him socially, he was truly freed from the slavery of trying to please men. What worldly righteousness can I give up for the sake of the gospel? What do you have in your pocket that you can pull out and say, boom, here is my, here's what I'm good at. Here's where I excel. Here's my track record. True freedom is ripping it up and throwing it away. Most people don't tend to think that they have any because we're so focused on what we don't have. But the litmus test of whether you're truly experiencing the freedom of adoption is if you're happily giving up any worldly righteousness that might define you for the sake of the gospel. So the second part is, you know, not only do we have a freedom from having to please people that, we, that we've seen being lived out by Paul, but we also, here's where the freedom creates love. In verses 13 through 15, in verse 13 Paul says that he was basically only passing through the Galatian region and he got stuck there only because he was sick. A bodily ailment, he says. And that's how he ended up having to share the gospel with them, because he got stuck there. He, he, he wasn't like going for them. It was like, oh, well, here I am. And he shared the gospel with them, but their response to the gospel was unbelievable. It's important to note, um, illness, deformity, disease, in the ancient world, they were seen as a sign of sin or um, sort of a disfavor with a deity. So Paul, if Paul was ill and he was preaching, that wouldn't have been a great combo, you know? Um, but the gospel, this sort of ill dude preached to them, it was so beautiful and powerful that it eclipsed any preconceived judgment they might have toward its messenger because of whatever his sickness. They responded to the gospel, not a man, and it led them to experience, look at verse 15, it says, a blessedness that gave them the freedom to care sincerely and really unconditionally for a weakened Paul as if he was an angel from God instead of a cursed cripple. 
They gave happily, willing to sacrifice, even to the greatest level, the meaning of the phrase there, you would have gouged out your own eyes for me? Like that's what, he, what they were, that was like a phrase in the day. Um, I think we should bring it back, by the way. But like that they would have gone to the ultimate level. Not out of a sense of obligation or needing to please slavery, but freely out of love. The Galatians had before experienced the freedom that comes out of embracing the true gospel. Not a slave's need to please people, but a freedom that enabled them to love in what was truly an alarming way. So when was the last time that you weren't weighed down with a sense of obligations? And you were able to freely love others seemingly without limit. Whenever that was, it was when you knew you were truly loved by God. When you knew that you were his own child, loved by him. A few of you may have heard this story from knowing me, but um, when we, um, when Coleman was five years old, I, I bought a, a basketball rim, and uh, I was assembling it, and a little kid from down the street, uh, she walked over, and she, she just started talking to us as I, as I was working, and Coleman was talking to her, and and we had this big old conversation, and she, you know, she eventually asked what I did to be able to afford such a great hundred-dollar basketball rim or whatever. And because uh, kids, they don't know, like it was, it, it was the lowest or whatever. But um, eventually, Coleman uh, started asking her what books that she she was reading because he takes after his mother, and and eventually he asked if if she had ever read the Bible. And, uh, and she said, uh, no, I don't have one. And he said, well, hold on one minute. And he ran upstairs. Like, maybe the proudest moment I've ever had as a dad. He ran upstairs and he grabbed his um, whatever Jesus storybook Bible thing. He brought it down and, and he, like, he said, I want you to have this. And he opened it up and he started showing her, like, some amazing, great things that were going on in it. And all I could think of was, I don't think ever in my life I've ever felt so free to just like give people stuff that was treasured to me. And yet, Coleman felt so safe in the Lord that he knew he wasn't lacking. So he could give freely. I think as we embrace our adoption, that's what happens with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like a slave. I'm tortured by trying to please people. Would you free me and my brothers and sisters that we might know 
the specialness of calling you Abba Father and the security of being your sons and daughters. That we might no longer be slaves to men, but free to love. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, one of the great aspects of being sons and daughters is the benefits that, that go along with, with adoption. And I'm, I'm stealing some future preacher's uh, best part, but at the end of Galatians, in chapter 6, Paul says, the second to last verse of it, he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body not the mark of circumcision, but the marks of Jesus. And what we do um, at the Lord's table is we reaffirm and receive our adoption as God's sons and daughters through the body and the blood of His Son, the costly sacrifice of Jesus. This week as I was preparing, um, because I, you know, I only do this like once a year maybe, uh, uh, leading the Lord's Supper is, is um, pretty uh, awkward and I need a, a rehash. But, so uh, elders and deacons that are helping, would you come forward? But I was reading the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in its directory of worship, this thing that was written like hundreds of years ago, but I thought that it had this beautiful statement um, about the Lord's Supper. And it said that it's to be observed in remembrance of Christ, to show forth his death until he comes, that it is of inestimable, inestimable benefit to strengthen his people against sin, to support them under troubles, to encourage and quicken them in duty, to inspire them with love and zeal, to increase their faith and holy resolution, to beget peace of conscience. I think there, a big part of that, the peace of conscience, is solidly knowing I am a son of or a daughter of God. And comfortable hopes of eternal life. If you are adopted children of God. And these elements are for you. Um, if you're not, I'd, I'd ask you to, to withhold from coming forward, but to think on these things as, as we go through them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that as we set apart these elements, you would use them to nurture and encourage us and the adoption that we have being redeemed, bought at a great price through great sacrifice of Jesus, your Son's body and blood. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.